This week on Wealth Track, legendary investor Jeremy Grantham discusses his market bubble of epic proportions forecast. So this is the first time we've ever risked three and a half asset classes bubbling at the same time. If and when we, we reach a period of pessimism, the potential unraveling in terms of perceived wealth is much greater this time than it will have ever been before. Join us for a rare interview with Jeremy Grantham on this week's Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this premiere edition of WealthTrack's new season. I'm Consuelo Mack. When WealthTrack launched in July of 2005, our mission was to help our audience and ourselves build financial security to last a lifetime through disciplined, long-term diversified investing. And we vowed to seek out the best minds in the financial business to guide us. Well, this week's guest is unquestionably one of them. He is legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham, co-founder of the global investment management firm GMO, where his title is long-term investment strategist, having been its chief investment strategist for many years before stepping down. A member of GMO's asset allocation team, the firm oversees almost $67 billion in assets from mostly institutional clients. Grantham is known for his prescient calls about market extremes and game-changing turning points. I will add that being far out of consensus is never popular. He saw the tech stock bubble in 1997, three years before it actually burst, an early call that cost GMO half of their asset allocation book of business at the time. In the late 2000s, he warned of the developing subprime mortgage and credit bubble and came close to calling the actual 2008 bull market peak. He then called the market bottom nearly to the day in March of 2009. When Grantham appeared on WealthTrack in 2018, he was predicting a possible market melt-up, a powerful late-stage two- to three-year-long market rally before an inevitable decline. He got the melt-up right even when figuring in the brief 2020 pandemic-induced bear market. This January, Grantham issued his epic bubble call in his GMO essay titled Waiting for the Last Dance. The long, long bull market since 2009 has finally matured into a fully-fledged epic bubble featuring extreme overvaluation, explosive price increases, frenzied issuance, and hysterically speculative investor behavior. I believe this event will be recorded as one of the great bubbles of financial history, right along with the South Sea bubble 1929 and 2000. He went on to say, These great bubbles are where fortunes are made and lost and where investors truly prove their mettle. Make no mistake, for the majority of investors today, this could very well be the most important event of your investing lives. Well, I started our conversation by asking Grantham for his most compelling evidence 
that we are in the midst of a bubble of epic proportions. I think since I said that, uh, we could take out the rivaling 1929 and 2000. I think we've gone way past that. There are examples of large-scale craziness and meme investing, etc., uh, for which there is simply no parallel in 1929 even or, or 2000. 2000 had pet.coms, and, and they were kind of glorious, but they were scores of millions or a few hundred million. We have crazy things now that are billions, and in some cases, tens of billions. And uh, to start at the top with my own favorite, QuantumScape, because we invested eight years ago uh, when it was three years old in our and, and what is QuantumScape? QuantumScape is a research lab mm-hmm. that came public through uh, one of these infamous SPACs quite recently. Uh, but wonderful as they are at research, uh, they came public with four years still to run before they have a dollar of revenue, <laughs> which is quite remarkable when you think about it. And they came at 10, as always is the case. Right. And by December, January, they were 132. And at 132, my investment, which coincidentally was the biggest investment I had ever made, had become hundreds of millions. Wow. And uh, at 10, I had made four times my money, which is very good indeed in, in yes. seven years, but not enough to write home to your mother. But uh, at 130, it was 13 times four, (laughs) or 52 times my investment, which was the largest ever. And um, it was bigger than the market cap of GM. It was bigger than the market cap of Panasonic to talk batteries. And it still had four years to run before it had a dollar of anything. And uh, the irony, of course, was I'd been sounding off about SPACs as an invention of the devil designed to lure innocent investors onto the rocks. And, uh, and there I am having this giant investment in a SPAC. And the second irony was I was holding forth that we would be lucky to reach June the 1st before the bubble broke. Right. And we were not allowed to sell until approximately June the 1st because we were locked up. And during that lockup, we watched it go down from 132 to 25. So uh, we were the most impressive speculation, I think. There is nothing like that at scale, even adjusted for current dollars in 1929. And, and we are down 80%, which is uh, a fairly fearful decline. But along with us, the next tier of speculative stocks also came down. The SPAC index is down over 20%. So doesn't that tell you that the market is essentially kind of a self-correcting mechanism? I mean, you're still ahead of the game with the investment, right? Doesn't that encourage you that, in fact, that the market kind of recognizes that these extremes have been reached and, and that we are seeing a correction in some of the most speculative parts of the market. I I think you've nailed it. The market is a self-correcting mechanism, but 
it's a little wonky in the time it takes. Sometimes right. it corrects pretty quickly, and sometimes it corrects uh, incredibly slowly. And, uh, and, and that's the problem. But if you go back to 2000, which is the current, the previous leader in speculation, let's say, mm -hmm. what happened there is the market peaked in, uh, peaked in March of 2000. And uh, between March and September, the uh, pet.coms basically went out of business. The, uh, the internet stocks basically went down 80%. Uh, but the whole dot-com, the whole uh, TMT bubble uh, burst, and the industry, which had been 30% of the market, uh, declined by 50%. Right. The S&P was unchanged. Yes. And you could have said during that five-month, six-month window, oh, isn't that healthy? They're selling, they're selling the flakiest pet.coms, and uh, they're buying uh, Coca-Cola. What's not to like about that? And right. that's exactly what happened. And I, I like to think of them as the kind of pessimism termites, and they, they add through the craziest first, and then the junior growth stocks, and then the intermediate growth stocks, and then finally Cisco, which was for eight minutes or so the biggest company in the world by market cap. And they were yes. all down collectively 50%. And so for the S&P to be flat in September, it meant that the balance of the market was up 17%. So that looked incredibly healthy, but then the termites reached the broad market, and the entire 70% rolled over and fell 50% in two years. And, uh, and the NASDAQ was down 82%. Right. So is, is that the kind of scenario? So you, you're going to get kind of some rolling corrections, and, but then eventually you think that in looking at today's market that the underpinnings are, are so weak that uh, that eventually, you know, it will take down the quote-unquote defensive stocks, the high-quality blue chip that pay dividends, and that everything will eventually be hit by this bubble of epic proportions. The thing about the underpinnings is they always look terrific. Mm -hmm. In 1929, the market didn't peak when they thought the underpinnings were terrible. They peaked when the market's enthusiasm for the underpinnings was approximately the highest it had ever been in history. In 2000, in March, the world uniformly, including the boss of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, they all thought the system had never been better. Right. At the top of the housing bubble in 07, Bernanke and the boys thought the US housing market had never declined, unquote. It merely reflected a strong U.S. economy. The underpinnings were great. They have never gotten it right. The Federal Reserve in particular has never had a clue about asset bubbles. It doesn't even address it. They act as if they don't exist, except on the upside, they occasionally take credit for the wealth effect helping the economy along. And it does. Right. There is an income effect, and it does help the economy along. And Greenspan, Bernanke, and Yellen all took credit uh, explicitly for helping the economy along. What they never did is they never took discredit 
for the reverse side. The market has been reverting mm -hmm. mechanism, and eventually right. it goes back to a fair price. And when it went back in 2001, 2002, it had a dreadful negative income effect. When the housing market collapsed and it took the equity market with it, it had a double-pronged negative effect on the economy. So it had a much bigger uh, impact on the economy than had occurred in 2000. And this time, we're really playing with fire because this time, unlike 2000, we have an overpriced bond market. Jim Grant would argue the most overpriced in 4,000 years. Right. We have, in my opinion, and that of many other bubbles students, the most overpriced U.S. equity market in history. We have a housing market that three weeks ago reached the same multiple of median family income as it did in 2006 at the peak of the housing bubble. And we have commodities that have recently run amok so that the Goldman Sachs index of non-energy, which is food and metals, which are pretty important, Mm -hmm. have just equaled the peak of 2011, which was said to be one of those super cycle commodity events. So right. this is the first time we've ever risked three and a half asset classes bubbling at the same time. If and when we, we reach a period of pessimism, the potential unraveling in terms of perceived wealth is much greater this time than it will have ever been before. I have listened to um, other people talking about, you know, what you're talking about. There are very few that are talking about in kind of in these dire terms. And, you know, you quoted uh, Robert Schiller, Nobel Prize winning economist, about the fact that, you know, that he said that even though his indices are showing the market, you know, at, at extreme valuations, that, that really when you look compared to the bond market, which as you said, um, is very expensive, that stocks don't seem so overpriced. What is your response to those um, kinds of arguments? I, I think the uh, interest rate argument is an explanation of how we get there in behavioral terms. It, it is not by any stretch of the imagination a justification. You don't justify anything by taking the, the most overpriced asset in the history of man, the bond market, right. and saying compared to that, we are merely very overpriced and therefore relatively cheaper. <laughs> that is very cold comfort. Um, Solomon Brothers, uh, an important firm at the time of, in 1989, sent right. around a hit squad uh, justifying the Japanese stock market, which was approaching 65 times earnings, we were told at the time. The, the data was represented as 65 times earnings. That had never previously sold over 25. Uh, so that was, to say the least, the real McCoy. And this team went around pointing out that the rates in Japan were so low that 100 PE would be fair. Of course, the collapse that followed in, in land and bonds and, and stocks was cosmic. And, right. and there- In 1989, and it still hasn't recovered. It still hasn't reached the 1989 right. level in either their real estate market or their stock market, uh, which reminds us of the cardinal rule, and that is the bigger the bubble, the most ingenious the arguments, and the bigger the bubble, the most extended and painful uh, uh, the decline.
There is a thesis, I'm sure you've heard it, the TINA, there is no alternative. And so, again, because, you know, for most, uh, in most money managers, for most individual retirement accounts, the choices have traditionally been stocks and bonds, some mix of the two. And therefore, if, if bonds are, you know, if interest rates are at zero, that stocks look pretty attractive as an alternative. So, you know, what is the alternative? Is there no alternatives to stocks for long-term investors? That, that argument is pretty easy to get one's brain around. But this yeah. is the most broad, as I said, asset bubble of all time with three and a half of the four major asset classes clearly in severe bubble territory. Right. And thinking that you have no alternative uh, but pick between one of the four bubbles is a pretty grim uh, way to view life. I, I get the argument, so pick a bubble, they'll all go together, probably, and you will suffer a lot of pain. Uh, and the intellectual content of that argument that they were all bubbles, so we had to pick the least bad one, uh, will um, resonate in your head as, as the market unravels. Is, is there any way that, that the, these bubbles can kind of, you know, just can self-correct and so that it's, it's not some sort of an Armageddon scenario? Or what if, if is you, your scenario? If you had a dozen, a dozen to 15 years of flat market with earnings doing okay and yeah. rotation within the market, everything would work out fine. And every portfolio manager I almost ever met has felt in, in, in market bubbles that that could happen. It just right. never does. The market okay. abhors long sideways movements, as we all know. It either goes up more than you think or down more than you think. You can always hold out hope for an extended sideways movement, but it, it never seems to arrive. Let me just say, by the way, I have enormous sympathy for participating in a bubble. When, right. when I was young in 1968-69, we had a spectacular mini-bubble in tiny stocks, and they all quadrupled and made us rich, and then they all blew up together, and most of them went out of business. And I was just out of business school, and I made a small fortune, almost enough to think about retiring to England. And then in the space of about nine months, I lost everything back to $2,000 and was lucky to cover my, my leverage and get out without a huge debt. It was thoroughly exciting, probably the most exciting time I've ever had in investing. So I completely sympathize. Nobody who is young and investing and making money is going to listen to some old codger tell his war stories about when he got wiped out. I get that. So there's nothing that I can say that will, will cause anyone to change their behavior. The power, the psychological power of a bubble to suck everybody in is prodigious. And, and we've known that since the tulip bubble. And it will never stop. But there are ways to handle it. And that's what I'm going to get to next. In my introduction to you, I mentioned a, a number of kind of prescient calls that you have made over the years. One of them, of course, was calling the market bottom uh, in, in March of 2009, basically to the day. And, and you wrote a piece entitled reinvesting when terrified, uh, telling clients to get back in the market at, at that point. At this juncture, it seems like we are in, in exactly the opposite situation. Should you be 
you know, writing a piece deinvesting uh, or disinvesting when terrified? And, and, you know, what do you recommend for uh, individual investors who maybe aren't that young and would suffer terrible consequences long term uh, from the bursting of these bubbles? You uh, suggest to me an interesting title, Disinvesting When Euphoric. (laughs) (laughs) That's a better title than I came up with. Yes, Disinvesting When Euphoric. It it feels psychologically difficult as reinvesting when terrified. They both catch the spirit of the exercise. Well, I would look around and ask the question, what is the least bad? And the least bad is emerging markets. It's a little overpriced, absolutely, but it is, it is at one of its three points of maximum difference to the S&P 500. Uh-huh. And each of the other two examples worked out wonderfully well in favor of emerging markets. Conversely, when emer- emerging markets was at a peak, which it was in uh, 07, it sold at a premium PE to the S&P, uh, you can have very bad things happen, which they did. But emerging markets is relatively very cheap Mm -hmm. and uh, pretty much close to fair value. And the other thing is value versus growth. Uh, Low growth stocks have been pummeled by high growth stocks for the decade ending in, in 2019. And then in the year 2020, they had the worst year by far ever. So you had the worst decade followed by the worst year and the ratio of value Uh, or low growth to high growth, was also at the co-equal highest, widest it had ever been uh, with uh, 1974. And the outcome after 1974 for value was wonderful. So I would look at the intersection of those two ideas. If you could buy the value stocks in the emerging market universe, uh, which after all includes... Which you can, right? Mm -hmm. Which you can, and it includes some very high growth potential countries like China, and collectively they will have a higher growth rate than the developed world, almost certainly, and they sell at a huge discount. I would say they are modestly cheap in an S&P world that is extremely overpriced. And you could lock them away for 10 years or 20 years and, and really expect a decent return, which I would recommend. Mm-hmm. And since there is no hope of persuading people to actually get out of stocks, that would be the best I could offer. But for those three people out there who have a will of steel, I would say also have a cash reserve of 20 or 30%, as much as you can psychologically bear, uh, to take advantage of much cheaper prices sometime in the not too distant future. So would that be your one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio at this particular point, is to have a stash of cash? No, I would have low-growth emerging markets, as much as uh-huh. I could stand, All right. and a cash reserve, as much as I could stand. And um, if you had 70-30, 30 cash and 70% uh, cheap emerging markets, that would be a pretty resilient portfolio, I have no doubt. For the next 10 or 20 years, though, I think the S&P, of course, will underperform, just as it had a tough time from 2000 to 2010, where it had a negative return. And emerging markets, incidentally, beat it by 11 or 12% a year compounded. And Jeremy, is this what you're doing with your personal portfolio? 
I, I don't really have a personal portfolio, but I have a foundation portfolio. Right. Uh -huh. Our job description is make as much money as we possibly can because we can use every dollar we can make. All right. And, and in the foundation, we have 75% early stage venture capital, which is, of course, unheard of. Right. And 25% and going on 30 these days in, in liquid reserves, which you have to have when you have a, a venture capital portfolio because of the calls on your money that you have committed to. And that, of course, has done brilliantly this year. It, it's yep. about as far away from overpriced assets as you can get. The closer you get to the day they start the business, the further removed you are from the inflated asset problem. You are participating somewhat with the founders if you're early stage enough. So we're going to leave it there for now, Jeremy Grantham. So thank you for joining us for this edition of Wealth Track. And I look forward to talking to you uh, on another edition about climate change investing. Thanks, Jeremy. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. At the close of every Wealth Talk, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is take some steps to protect yourself from an inevitable bear market. There are many signs of speculative excess in the stock market. The sharp and historically short bear market of early 2020 did not ring them out. A significant market pullback is overdue. Rebalanced by taking some profits out of the most expensive segments of the U.S. stock market, namely high-tech growth, redeploy some of the profits into the cheapest segments here, namely high-quality value stocks. Also consider investing some money in cheaper international markets, especially emerging market value stocks, which despite a recent rebound are still much cheaper than the U.S. equivalent. Much despised U.S. Treasury notes and bonds also offer protection in downturns, as does cash. As an individual investor, you have the freedom to create protective buffers in your portfolios that most professionals don't. Take advantage of it. Next week, in part two of our Grantham interview, we explore climate change investing. He is a pioneer in it. He'll discuss how to combat climate change with investments. Thank all of you who are following us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Have a wonderful celebratory July 4th weekend. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.